The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. My name is Daniel Hogan Thomas, and I'm an intern here in the Inn. I'm a firm believer in getting to know the person who's speaking with you, so... Be prepared to be subjected to all sorts of a brief history of me. (laughs) Cue the next slide. (laughs) All right, you guys. In case you're curious about the chronology, the uh, top left picture's first. (laughs) That's my family. You have Greg and Heidi. And uh, if you want to guess which one of those hooligans I am, hence, I'm wearing a bow tie. Hence, I'm a boy. (laughs) Hence, I'm in the bottom left corner. Um... Raised with four siblings, three brothers and a sister, all incredibly different. Um, My father's the one with the mustache that makes Tom Selleck jealous. My mother doesn't mind that at all. A few of us kids have gotten hitched, as you can see in this other picture, where you have a lot of my family gathered. And uh, then Chris is sitting at my niece. That's great. So let's go to the next picture. Great. So as a kid, my favorite activities included irritating my just older brother, mastering Age of Empires II, the Conqueror's expansion, and doing my best to interpret the stock market listings in the newspaper. Also, I tried soccer. Some of you guys who've been at the inn probably are wondering why you haven't seen pictures of Chris and I already. Who am I to deny the people what I'm assuming you all want? So let's go. Great. Great. Great, move to the next picture. Okay, this is the one that we need to spend a bit more time on. This, this is the first known picture of Carissa and I. She's right there in the front row with the softball shirt on, the, the beaming smile. If you squint just right and look towards the back, you might be able to recognize a familiar form. We were freshmen in high school. It was love. Okay. I'll save you guys a really long story. We started dating. We made out in a thunderstorm. We got engaged. Come on. As my father remarked, man, they caught the perfect angles on both you guys. (laughs) Thanks, Dad. All right. Though it's been over three months since it's occurred, no, I'm still readily accepting congratulations, high fives, hugs. Any and all condolences should be directed towards the one sitting in the back who's blushing, probably actively trying to hide in this particular moment. She's a lovely woman, and I will continue to speak about her with every opportunity I have, whether or not it's been asked for. Um, There is, however, one member of my family that I didn't introduce until just now. Come on, Bailey, work with me. There we go. Allow me to introduce you to Rodeo. Rodeo was our first real pet. Rodeo, like a lot of first dogs, was begged for for an obnoxious amount of time. And after enjoying six months of overwhelming attention, I'm sad to admit, suffered from a fair amount of neglect. However, this stage of neglect wasn't meant to last. Eventually, all of us kids fled the coop, leaving my mother devoid of her own progeny. So where does she direct her love, attention, and affection? to none other than this dog. (laughs) Rodeo thrived in this environment, and despite a few rough traits, was a good-natured dog. 
I found myself increasingly affectionate of the one I no longer had to walk, no longer had to feed, no longer had to clean up after. Oddly enough, my father still didn't like him. It was weird. I was looking forward to getting back together with my family and rodeo um, on Christmas break of my sophomore year of college. However, when I got home, I found out that Rodeo, um, at the age of 13, had, had died um, just before I got there. I was really distraught. Not everyone in my family was home yet. It was just me, my mom, and my oldest brother. We entered a time of mourning. It was a foggy day up on our tree farm just outside of Salem, and we decided he should be buried where he enjoyed so many of his illicit activities chasing neighborhood dogs, digging up my mother's garden, chewing up my father's sprinkler system, joyfully pooping all over the garage. (laughs) Michael and I dug a hole before swinging down to the veterinarians to collect him and came back with his body bag. We gathered around his grave. My brother delivered a stirring eulogy. My mother actually led us in the singing of all creatures of our God and King, or all creatures great and small, but regardless, we, we did that. And then I actually played taps on my trumpet. Like, <laughs> we were taking this seriously. All of us were in tears. By the time it came to unzip the bag, Michael and I knelt down in the mud and began to open it up when staring back out at us was was not our rodeo. <laughs> it, was, it was a black lab with a protruding tumor coming out of his neck. The tags around him identified him as none other than Lucky. We didn't have rodeo at all. It's almost possible to laugh now in retrospect. Almost. It was the final trick of a clever dog that had frequently outwitted us through most of his life. I, for my part, was absolutely furious when I first discovered it. It was incredible just how easy it was for deep sorrow and mourning to transform into incredible rage and fury. This might sound like an odd place to break from the story, but I think now is an important time for us to transition into scripture and the actual purpose as to why we're gathering here tonight. First, let's take this opportunity to pray uh, before we dive into the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for giving us the chance to gather here tonight and hear your word. I pray that as I speak tonight, you would empower me by your spirit to speak truth about your son. God, open up our eyes that we may see Open up our ears that we may hear, and open up my mouth that you may speak. Amen. The passage we'll be examining tonight is found in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. For the past couple months, we've had the pleasure of listening to Ryan, Janie, and Bailey speak on the different I am statements of Christ. Each one of these statements reveals a different and critical component of Christ's character. Tonight, we get to examine the passage of scripture surrounding Christ's declaration, I am the resurrection and the life. We have a gigantic task in front of us, so let's hop right to it. If we can get uh, John 11, thanks. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one that you love is sick. It's worth noting 
that Jesus has an exceptionally close relationship with this family. Mary and Martha show up all over the place through the Gospels. These are the closest things to siblings we see of his, aside from his actual siblings which seem to reject him and cast him out of his hometown. In fact, the word love used here when they're talking about the one that you love is is the brotherly form of love. When he hears that his bro is sick, Jesus' response, however, is a little odd. Jesus said, The sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days and then said to his disciples, Let's head on back to Judea. If you're confused right about now, you're in good company. Who, when they hear that someone that they love is sick and that they have the ability to heal them, decides to stay exactly where they are for two more days? My pops is a doc. If if he heard that I was seriously ill or was thinking about getting seriously ill or had forgotten to take my medication, there's a good chance he would come just as quickly as was possible, would drop everything and would come see me. But Jesus waits a few days before almost arbitrarily declaring about his intentions to venture in the direction of this family he loves. You're about to find out his disciples weren't all that thrilled or sold on the idea either. They say, but Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and you want to go back? (laughs) They're like, hey, Jesus, remember they actually tried to kill you last time? (laughs) Why now? (laughs) Okay, I love this part. Oh, yeah, he went on to tell them, sorry. After that, he said, uh, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go wake him up. Like, great, great. I love this part. It actually goes right over the disciples' heads. It's nice scripture. It has characters that we can imagine in real life or at least can identify with. I can imagine them rolling their eyes as they respond, uh, Hey, Lord, um, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. (laughs) The author feels the need to clarify here. (laughs) When Jesus was speaking of his death, uh, Jesus had been speaking of his death, rather, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. (laughs) Jesus breaks the bad news to them real gently. Our friend Lazarus is dead. (laughs) And for your sake... I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go anyways. And they're like, great, Lazarus is dead. Jews want to kill you. We'll be dead. This is good. So this might actually be my favorite part. I can imagine Jesus like saying this and like turns and starts walking off and the disciples are just kind of standing there and Thomas turns to the other guys. He's like, let us also go that we may die with him. We don't have anything else going on, so heck, if he's going to go get himself killed, let's do it in company. Jesus never really got around to the whole Jews want to kill you thing, let alone answering it. Okay, so while this whole bit has been interesting and at times a little entertaining context, it's, it's just that. It's context to the real meat of the passage. So 
On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles away from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but her sister Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Ouch. This might sound like a statement of faith with the whole, I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. But if you actually listen, she's blaming Jesus. If you showed up when we asked you to, my brother would still be alive. And then even more than that, she says, and I know you have the ability to make this right. So do it. Jesus' response, your brother will rise again. Martha interprets this as a theological statement like, Jesus, I get it. He'll rise at the end of the world when everybody else rises to come and meet you. But Jesus responds again with a statement that blows a number of Near Eastern minds. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's coming into the world. We'll talk more about the significance of this in just a little while, I promise. But for now, suffice to say that Martha heads back to her sister, Mary, and tells her that Jesus wants to talk to her. We're told that Mary, once again her sister, who was mourning in the house, books it over to him, a sobbing mess. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. He said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then something exceptionally odd happens. Jesus begins to weep. Jesus, the guy who had just told Martha that Lazarus would rise from the dead, the guy who had told his disciples that this illness thing does not lead to death but to God's glory, he's been calling the shots the whole time, but now he's got steamy hot tears rolling down his cheeks. Why? Great question. I'm convinced this happens for two different reasons. The first reason is empathy. Notice that when Mary comes up and confronts Jesus, she uses the exact same verbiage as her sister. I get the general impression they might have talked about this a little bit before Jesus showed up. No joke. She says, Jesus, Jesus, if you'd showed up on time, my brother would still be alive. But Jesus' response is completely different. He joins her in her sorrow and mourns with her much like the rest of her community is already doing with her. He's meeting her precisely where she's at, even though he knows that goodness is coming, even though he has a very different perspective on the events that have taken place. The other reason why Jesus starts to cry is because Jesus is actually deeply affected by the death of a man he loved like a brother. 
In the passage, it says that Jesus is greatly disturbed in spirit twice. Once when he first encounters Mary, and the second time is when he actually arrives at the tomb. (laughs) I knew it would work eventually. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone lying against it. Jesus recognizes that death, mourning, and sadness are just that. Really freaking sad. I love the humanity of Jesus. It seems like in this moment, it would have been pretty easy for Jesus to start shaking the other people around him, saying, you guys, you guys, he's going to be all right. I'm here. Things will get better, okay? I know someone who knows someone. Mostly, I just know someone. We're going to make this thing right. Instead, Jesus seems to actually take time to mourn. Death is freaking sad. This is my point. Dramatic pause. This is my point. Sometimes in the Christian community, I feel that we can be too hurried to rush ourselves or others towards the silver lining, which we often call the big picture. We skip right from Good Friday to Easter Sunday and forget that there was a long freaking Saturday in between when everything looked pretty bleak, when everything looked pretty hopeless and pretty dead. Death, divorce, and suffering, these things are sad. The fact that all things will be rectified in the end shouldn't numb us to the fact that these things are not as they're supposed to be. When we see injustice, we should be made upset. When we see abuse, we should be angry. When we see unnecessary pollution, we should be sad. I feel strongly that Christ is giving us not only permission, but a mandate to experience these things for what they are. A mess, and not as they're supposed to be. Now hear me correctly. What I'm not calling for us to do is wallow and perseverate. In my story with my dearly departed doggy, Rodeo, much like Mary and Martha, my sadness had quickly become anger when I had someone dependent on Someone to blame. My reaction might seem strong considering this is a dog. But many of you who have dogs realize that there's a connection with them where you might actually be really, really, really disturbed when they pass. That was the case with me. I was tempted to kneel there in the mud and continue to utilize a wide variety of colorful phrases my mother would prefer not to hear me use. But eventually... My brother took me by the arm, and we went down and reported the problem to the vet, who eventually sorted it out with many apologies. He gave us rodeo, and we gave rodeo a proper farewell. If I had been allowed to simply stay put in my sadness and anger, corrective action could have never been taken. Our mourning should propel us always towards action, and ultimately towards Christ. It's a difficult balance to strike, but I love the way that Jesus illustrates it. He's mourning, yet he's actively seeking the tomb. In verse 39, it says, Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha interjects. By this time, he's going to start smelling. He's been in there for a little while. And Jesus gives what's apparently a satisfactory response and says, Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? 
And Martha's probably thinking, like, I just don't want to smell the glory of God right now. (laughs) But in any case, the gathered people are like, who am I to argue? And so they roll away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. This morning leads him to action, and ultimately back to God. He looks to his father to redeem and make good of a situation and praises him for the opportunity to do so. Ryan Church frequently likes to say that we live, I'm going to butcher this again, Ryan, we live in the tension of the present and the not yet or the yet to come or you get the general idea. This is a perfect example of Jesus Christ striking the balance between the two. Jesus mourns but mourns with direction, with vector, with an arrival point. What I would love for us to take away from this is that we should mourn and be sad. We should do those things. But it's not our job to stay there. We live with hope. Why? Good question. Check this out. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. This has been the portion of scripture that's been weighing heavily on me since I started preparing for this message. Lazarus who is dead for four days, stumbles out of the tomb and into the arms of those who love him most on the planet. You want to talk about a good ending? But as I was thinking about this, I started to wonder, whatever happened to Lazarus? We're told a few chapters later that some of those same Jews who weren't so keen on Jesus also wanted to put Lazarus to death, to re-death, death again, death Part two, the bone wars. Lazarus in the chamber of death. Lazarus in the two deaths. You're getting the general picture. Even if they didn't succeed, as far as I know, Lazarus isn't still around today. My point is this. Lazarus is dead. He's no longer with us. If Lazarus got resurrected just to die again, what was the point? In fact, while we're at it, Jesus healed lepers, they died. He allowed mutes to speak, they died. He cured paralytics, they died. What was the point of these miracles? Why should we care about them? Last week, Ryan talked about the passage where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Right after Jesus feeds the 5,000, he wanders away, and the 5,000 keep following him. Jesus turns around and calls out to them, Dude, you guys aren't exactly following me because you're picking up what I'm putting down. You're following me because you want another free meal. Here's the thing, you guys. You eat the bread that I make for you, you'll get hungry again. But you eat of the bread of heaven, and you'll never need anything else Again, the people seem to respond by smiling and nodding. I get the general impression that they actually just want more baguettes. 
But Jesus is like, I'm the bread of life, okay? It's not about the freaking carbohydrates. I am the bread of life. I sustain you. I give you life. These things, the bread, the healing from sickness, the resurrection, they were never primarily about those things. It was always to act as a sign. It was always to be pointing back to Jesus himself. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the one that brings us back from death and into life and into real relationship with God and others. What does this mean for us? We have been called into new life. New life in proper relationship with our God and our community. We were dead in our sins, completely lost in our identity, separate, hopeless, ungrounded in the universe before God came and rescued us from isolation, separation, and despair. In the midst of death, God brought life. I love that Jesus stands at the mouth of Lazarus' tomb and calls him by name. Jesus calls each of us by name. He knows us. He loves us. He takes pleasure in us. We aren't people that he loves out of obligation, but out of desire. Isn't that sweet? He mourns our departure from him and rejoices at our return when he calls us home. Lazarus' reaction is priceless and perfectly illustrates many of our own. It's too good to be true. Lazarus was literally helpless, dead, lying in the tomb, already starting to stink. When he wakes up and starts stumbling towards the light, bleary-eyed, maybe he still has eye bogeys because he's been out for four days. I'm not totally sure. But he stumbles out of the tomb, still wrapped in his death bandages. It's almost like Lazarus doesn't believe he's alive yet. He's still clinging on to death like death once clung to him. My family has been going through a lot this year. If you aren't working with me in the trailer, there's a good chance that you wouldn't know about it. My oldest brother wrestled with long-term unemployment despite being one of the most intelligent and inquisitive individuals I've ever had the pleasure of speaking with. My father was forced to retire prematurely because of health problems. My brother has been navigating the incredibly long, painful, and lonely passage of divorce. But out of death, new life is being made. My oldest brother now works at Bellevue Christian. My father has been forced to relax for the first time ever, perhaps. But where do you draw goodness from divorce? What do you do with those questions? What I'm saying is this. We can and should mourn the sadness we encounter. If I didn't look at those things in my family's life and say, that is not how it's meant to be, then I would be so incredibly dishonest. It would be a shame. And it wouldn't be truth. But neither would it be truth to cling to it. We can and we should call God out into it. The goodness of God is this. Not that he protects us from evil, 
but that he reserves the right to draw life from death. Redemption and resurrection have the final word. We are no longer dead, but alive. We've been called to new life in Christ, not because of anything we've done, but because we serve a God who has conquered death and the grave for us and invited us into the victory. He's rescued us from our darkness, isolation, calling us back into the light to know him and to know others in right relationship. Can't we see that this is what Christ wants for each one of us? In the same way he loves Lazarus, our Jesus loves us and hungers for us. Just as Jesus wept over Lazarus and his death, even in the midst of the hope and understanding that resurrection and life was coming, our Jesus even now weeps, even though he knows what's coming at the end of our story, the making right of all things. We have a God who loved us enough to come down to this earth and live as one of us, to experience all that we do, the powerlessness, the fear, the temptation, and out of it, he has called us to know him. Paul put it best in some of his later letters. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Behold, all things are passing away. For the old is gone and the new is come. We have been raised to new life in Christ. A rich, full life with joy and redemption and mourning and sorrow. A life with a God who knows us by name. A life that is not our own. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us in spite of us. Thank you for calling us to new life. Though we were dead in our sins, thank you for knowing us by name and caring intimately about us. I pray that you would help us choose you to choose life. Help us to realize the depth of your love and affection for us, that we might be transformed by your love. We love you, Lord. Help us to love you more. We ask for all of this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.